Good morning, everyone. Uh, I'm curious, uh, everyone have like uh, all the Christmas decorations put away at home? Yeah, people do that. Uh, anyone slacking on that? You're just staying. A lot of, lot of second service people in celebratory mode. That's a beautiful, that's a, that's a good thing. But whether you have the decorations up or not, Christmas is now in the rear view mirror. And given that reality, I would like to read a poem by a man named Howard Thurman. He was one of Martin Luther King Jr.'s uh, mentors. His poem is called The Work of Christmas. It's about what happens after Christmas. So listen to these words and let your heart be open to them. Howard Thurman says, when the song of the angels is stilled, when the star in the sky is gone, when the kings and princes are home, when the shepherds are back with their flocks, the work of Christmas begins to find the lost, to heal the broken, to feed the hungry, to release the prisoner, to rebuild the nation, to bring peace among the people, to make music in the heart. Are those beautiful words? I don't know if I feel more intimidated or more inspired by them. Maybe equal parts, both. But very clearly, uh, the good reverend is challenging us. After all the decorations are put away, after all the thank you notes have been written, and some of us are still writing the thank you notes, after all the presents have been returned so that you can get what you really wanted in the first place, <laughs> will we be different because of the coming of God in the child Jesus? Will our lives have been changed? To address these very, very important questions, we're beginning 2024 with a series called Unbelievable. It's a series about the love of God, the unbelievable height, breadth, and length of that love. And I begin this morning praying for each and every one of us that our hearts would be attuned to that love and be open to it. So let me pray for us, and then we'll get into the scripture. Holy Spirit, encircle this place, and though it is cold by Northern California standards, we welcome the fire of your presence to warm us to melt away the rigidities of our hearts and minds, to be filled with the fullness of your love. Speak to us. And I pray for each and every person in this space, those especially carrying heavy burdens. May your tender love uh, renew us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. At the turn of the calendar year, Many Christians around the world return to the story of the Magi. The Magi are those mysterious figures who come from far away and bring gifts to the baby Jesus, the Magi. Now, those of us who have been going to church for some time, uh, I think it's possible that we may suffer from over-familiarity with the story. We've been singing about the Magi, the three kings of the Orient since we were small, maybe. 
but I want to welcome us into a new posture, a fresh posture. I suffer from over-familiarity with the story. I always assume that there were three magi, for instance. We three kings of the Orient. All of the artwork I've ever seen has three magi. But if you look closely at the story, it doesn't actually say that there are three. We just assume they are because it is so in the culture of the story. And I don't know about you, but I always assumed that these magi were wise men. But if you pay close attention to the story, it doesn't actually say that they are men. So I find this piece of artwork interesting. It's playing with the idea that possibility, the next piece of artwork, not this piece of artwork, um, that suggests the possibility that the magi could have been women. We don't know that they were, but we don't know that they were men. I wonder if there are details or meaning to the story that might be meaningful for us to re-embrace. So let's return to the story with fresh eyes and with a curious heart. The story about the Magi is found in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Let me read. It says, in the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem asking, where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? For we observed his star. That's very interesting. He has a star. We have come to pay him homage. Now, I won't read the verses that come after, uh, but I'll just summarize to say uh, Herod was a paranoid, violent man interested in protecting his power. So these magi come in to talk about a king that was born. This is not good news to him. And so he wants to find out from these magi where this baby is being born so that he can crush the rebellion, right? That sounds a little like Star Wars-ish. Uh, I'll read the end of the story, beginning in verse 10. It says, When they, the magi, saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. I wonder what it meant that the star stopped over Bethlehem and over the house that Jesus was born in. It says, On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. They knelt down and paid him homage. And then opening their treasure chests, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. So there are many things that we might say about this story and why it is that Christians all over the world return to it at the beginning of the year. But at center, I simply want to point out to us all that the presence of these magi in the story of salvation is a surprising event, even an unwelcome event to the faithful Jew. We think them to be astrologers, not astronomers. You know, astronomers are scientists. Astrologers are people who are sort of trying to predict the future by the stars. So there's that piece in the story about how 
Uh, they had seen Jesus' star in the sky. They would be sort of like fortune tellers or palm readers, people that educated might people think might be to be manipulators, people that are just out to control people or get money from people. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament prophets, the Old Testament prophets who had a high standard for devotion to God thought of stargazing or astrology as a form of idolatry. You could read about that in Isaiah chapter 47 in the 13th verse, somewhere around there. The warning to the people of God about the kinds of people who are involved in these sorts of things. They are untrustworthy. These are not people who have a serious pursuit of God, or so they think. And we also know that these magi, these astrologers, are from the east. And the text doesn't tell us where in the east they are from. But if you look at a map of ancient Israel, everything to the east is bad. That's where Assyria is. That's where Babylon is. That's where Persia is. That's where Nineveh is. And if you know the story of God's people, these are all more powerful nations that at one time or another, over centuries of time, violently oppressed and attacked Israel and dragged them away into exile. They were the oppressors. They were Israel's ancient enemies. If you're from Northern California, those are those people from Southern California who are taking our water, you know? If you are a San Francisco Giants fan, those are those people wandering around wearing blue baseball caps and signing all the best free agents in the world. Yeah. If you are politically attuned, the people to the east, they're the people who are on the other side of the political aisle who are, have no mind to speak of. And if you are spiritually enlightened and thoughtful and educated, these might be thought of as the fundamentalists. You know, these are people who don't really know what is. On a more serious note, given the kind of political violence and hatred that existed for centuries, the hatred that existed between ancient Israel and everything to the east would have been every bit as virulent as the kind of hatred that we see in the Middle East today. These are people that we do not want around us. These are people who cannot be a part of our story. If you're a reader of the Bible, you might remember the prophet Jonah, whom God calls to Nineveh in the east. And his response is, no way am I going there. I'm going the opposite direction. That is not God's will. God's love is greater than that. And so God gives him an escort where he needs to go. He uh, delivers him gently upon the shore there. And even then, Jonah just totally mailed it in. He gives the lousiest speech ever. God loves the Ninevites so much that they repent. And uh, Jonah pouts uh, underneath a tree. Uh, so great is the resistance 
of his heart. So that's all in the background of this story of the Magi. We don't understand the story unless we understand that there is kind of a rigidity, a limitation in the human heart to the kind of love that exists. God's love is unbelievably great. It's higher and wider and deeper than we know. And it stretches us to the breaking point for, uh, for Jonah and for most of the people of Israel. There was a rigidity that didn't want God's love to be given to the outsider. So it's like grace for us, not for them. You know, that would have been the rule. There is that sort of rigidity. And sometimes there's just resistance in our own hearts to the love of God. We kind of want to believe for the love of God, but in our heart of hearts, many of us believe that God loves other people, but we feel unworthy. We feel alone. So the story of the Magi, worthy of our meditation, what does the Holy Spirit say to God's people by the presence of the Magi in the central story of salvation? Well, number one, I think it tells us that God's love is bigger than our love, that God's love is bigger than we even want it to be. God's love is expansive. And that's why we passed out to you a bookmark that has a prayer from Ephesians chapter 3. It's a prayer from the Apostle Paul that God pour out power upon his people that our imaginations and our hearts would stretch to know, experience, and contain that love, that we would know love that is beyond knowledge. The story of the Magi tells us that God's love is bigger than we imagine. There is more of it to plumb. Even if you've been in the world of church things for centuries, there is more for us to know. And secondly, it's telling us that if we open our hearts to that love and participate in God's extension of that love to other people, especially to those who are lost, even to people who like the Magi, who are unclean idolaters, if we participate in the love of God, extending it to others, we will be the people who receive the greatest blessing. I think there's a good case to be made that it would have been most natural for Mary and Joseph and people who were in their inner circle with them, possibly, to have turned the Magi away. It's like, this is not a good time for visitors. <laughs> Visiting hours are next week for family and for Magi, maybe never. <laughs> you know, We're not really open to visitors at this point. These are unclean people coming into a holy moment. But Mary and Joseph don't turn away these magi, and because they open their space, because they open their homes into a vulnerable moment, because they open their hearts, Mary, Joseph, and Jesus receive extraordinary gifts, material gifts, spiritual gifts, gifts that mark their lives and change them forever. We will receive blessings as we participate in God's love for the greater world around us. So that's the big spiritual idea of the Magi, or in the world of formal churches, what they call the Feast of Epiphany, that God is revealing light 
not just to Israel, not just to the clean peoples, but to the nations of the world. That's the big idea. I'd like to come all the way down for those of us who are sort of concretist thinking souls and ask, what does that great big love look like for an ordinary person? So I was thinking about this, and the story of a woman in the 19th century whom we know as Therese of Lisieux came to mind. She's a 19th century French nun. If you're sort of like um, familiar with that part of history, she's a, a Carmelite nun. Uh, she is interesting to us because we think of saints in the church as people who have accomplished extraordinary things. People like Mother Teresa of Calcutta, who served the poorest of the poor and started an order that went all around the world. People that had done extraordinary things or who uh, had extraordinary ideas. People like St. Thomas Aquinas, who wrote big, thick books that are hard for some of us to understand, but that are deep and meaningful and get to the soul of the human person. And Teresa of Lisieux didn't do either of these things. She never built an organization. She never built a movement. She didn't travel around the world. She just lived in this one little place. She was familiar with the experience of suffering. She uh, had the unfortunate experience of her mother dying when she, Therese, was four. And Therese herself was diagnosed with tuberculosis at age 15, so it meant that she spent her adolescent years uh, constantly sick, spitting up blood, weak and uh, irritated. Uh, and she would die with this disease at age 24. She died as a young person. And in the midst of her suffering and limitation, she demonstrated to the world in a way that the church recognized as unique she demonstrated what it meant to live in an awareness of the love of Christ in what Therese would call the little way. She didn't do grand things, but she just lived the love of Christ in the little way. So I want to um, just uh, name three brief quotes from Therese uh, and a comment on what it, those uh, quotes might mean for us as people who would follow after her in the way of love. And I would encourage you uh, not necessarily to take all of them in, but if there's one of them that seems like, that sounds like maybe a word for me. You can take a picture of it or just jot it down in a journal and think this week or this month about what it would mean for you to follow in this way. To be a person whose heart is filled with the immensity of God's love in the small ordinariness of your own life. So, here we go. Therese said, my vocation is love. My vocation is love. Here, when she uses the word vocation, she's talking about not her job, but her identity. And one of the things that exists in Therese's uh, journals is uh, her own inner wrestling with her ambitions or with her ego. So she, like many of us in Silicon Valley, longed to do something impressive 
in the world. So she writes about wanting to be an apostle or a prophet, kind of great religious leaders who would found a movement or speak truth in a powerful way or go around the world. She wanted to be some kind of prayer warrior. And in the midst of her wrestling with her own limitations, the limitations of her strength, the limitations of the lot in life that God had given to her, she ultimately comes to the conclusion that her vocation is love, and it is enough for her to be a little flower in the garden of God. And if you look at uh, religious art uh, icons, you will often see uh, St. Therese of Lisieux uh, carrying a bouquet of flowers as the sign that she had embraced this vocation, that she didn't need to be something impressive, that she could be God's little flower, exuding God's beauty where she was, spreading the fragrance of Christ's love where she was. How many of us in Silicon Valley struggle with a sense of ego, that we haven't put enough on our resume yet, that we haven't accomplished something worthy of remembrance, that in our small group gatherings, in the religious context, we don't say prayers as beautiful as someone else says prayers, and we feel mildly embarrassed about that. How many of us have a sense of inner striving that we're needing to demonstrate to the world around us that our existence is justified, that we are worthy? How many of us feel inadequate? The good news of Therese is that if we embrace the idea that our vocation is love, we will know, we will receive, we will live in confidence that in the eyes of God, we are enough. And I will speak that word because I think there's belief in the hearts of many of us here in the room. You are seen by God. You are known by God. In your imperfection and in your great capacity, and you are loved by God before you accomplish anything. God knows your weakness. He knows your frailty. He knows the days of your lives. You are significant in his eyes. And it is only from this place of settled identity and vocation that we can move out into the world and safely and joyfully do things that are for the honor of God to make our vocation love in other places, to be a manager or an executive, who serves in love for those who are in our constituencies, to be a teacher who manages our classroom and who teaches children in love, to be a student who pursues our studies with love for the good gift that God has given us and for all the people around us that God has given us. What would it mean for you in these days to embrace this reality that your vocation is love? First and foremost, to know yourself as greatly loved. That's the first word of Teresa. The second thing I wrote down was this quote that says, that remember that nothing is small in the eyes of God. So do all that you do with love. The fruit of Teresa's labor endures, not because she did great things, but because she did small things with great love. And her life is telling us that if we also do small things with great love, that God will take our small and imperfect offerings and glorify it into eternity. There is a charming story of Therese 
in her journals where she talked about her wrestling with this nun, this sister of hers, that's an annoyance to her. So she's a regular person, you know, she's like you and me. It's like there are people whose personalities, people whose like level of noise, you know, or whatever is like an irritant to her. So she writes extensively about the challenge of loving people who are an annoyance to us. And she writes about her, her wrestling with that and her, her spiritual sense that the devil is at work in that, helping, causing us to focus on un, unnecessarily giving undue attention to the most negative things about someone else's life. Maybe you have that experience as well. It's all you can think of when you think of someone is the most negative things about their lives. And she writes about how it is that she chooses to make her offering of prayer for this annoying sister and how she chooses in the presence of God to name this annoying sister's virtue. And she says that this is right and good because God, the artist, delights in having his work admired. She talks about how it is that she chooses to smile at this sister and to serve this sister and when she's come to the limits of her capacity to do that, and when she just can't overcome her annoyance, how it is that she turns away and you know, understands. It's like, I don't have anything to give today, but better to turn away than uh, to be a curse to this person. Maybe there's an annoying person in your life, but that there are other small acts of love that God calls us to. You know, there is so much of life that is hidden. And in Silicon Valley, so often we want to do things that make headlines. We want to do something that is going to change the world, change culture. But so much of life is inescapably hidden. And so many of us in this season of our lives are called to hidden work which other people may never see or appreciate, to care for someone hurting or discouraged or disabled, to do the work of caring for household and children or elderly folks. That can be hidden work. Ministries of leadership can be hidden. Ministries of administration and of prayer can be hidden. And it's possible for those of us who long for a sense of affirmation to get discouraged along the way, even to get frustrated with the people who we love most. We oftentimes listen to a dark whisper that says, it's all in vain. You may as well just shut it down and tend to yourself since nobody else is looking out for you. And Therese is saying that in the kingdom of God, Every small act that we offer with great love is seen and blessed by the Father and will be celebrated and glorified into eternity. And will not only that will contribute to your own transformation of becoming more like Christ, a person of great love. So do small things with great love, Therese says. And then lastly, she says, to live in love is to sail forever, spreading seeds of joy and peace and hearts. She's saying that if we offer ourselves in love, opening our hearts to God, 
we will open ourselves to energy that comes from outside of us that will fill our hearts. It is not the case that we will necessarily have ease in our love. It is not the case that love won't feel costly because love is always costly by its very nature. But Therese is telling us that there is an inner knowing that we are not alone in the offering of our love. That when we offer small acts of love in the name of Jesus, that we are always accompanied by the power of his spirit. And if we pay attention to the energy of that love, if we open our hearts to it in a way that a sailor unfurls his sail, the wind of God's spirit and the energy of his love will take us beyond our uh, circle of safety. It will lead us out into our neighborhood and out into our workplace in conversations with strangers to pray for and bless, and the love of God will be made known in the way that it was to the Magi. Let's be people as we embark upon the adventure that 2024 can be, who unfurl the sails of our hearts and let the love of God carry us to the ends of the earth, spreading seeds of joy in hearts everywhere we go. As we begin this new year, let's remember the story of the Magi, that God's love is a power that is greater than we know. If you are a follower of Jesus, it is your vocation. It is your identity. It is where all of your activities and your gifts and hopes find their ultimate purpose a spiritual reality that we must all wrestle with is that the human heart is always resistant to God's love in one way or another. And we can confess that reality. We don't have to freak out about it. We can confess it because the good news of the gospel is that God is the healer of our rigidity. He's the expander of human hearts. He's the softener of the rock of our hearts. He's the bestower of the new heart of flesh. So let's pray as we enter into the presence of God. The worship team will come. I'd invite you to imagine three concentric circles, the center of which is the circle in which only God dwells. It's to say that first and foremost, our call as we embark upon a new year, is to tend to the fire of love in our own hearts. Is the fire of God's love in your heart a flickering flame, or is it a raging fire these days? That's a question of great importance. The next ring out might be the ring of our household, or maybe a river small group. We might ask, to whom is God calling us to be a vessel of love? maybe a roommate or even a spouse whom you take for granted, or a new person in your small group or just a person you haven't gotten to know well yet, maybe there's something there today. And in the outer circle, there is someone outside the family of faith, some idolater, some unclean magi whom God is sending you to love. Maybe there's somebody you see at work or in your neighborhood. 
Maybe you would just jot down your initials on that bookmark and begin praying for them daily. Lord, as we worship you, we know that apart from you we can do nothing, but that bound to you and filled with your love, that new life is always possible. So pour out that love upon us afresh today. Consume our hearts with your holy fire as we worship you.